The coronavirus has altered almost every aspect of our lives. Parents are homeschooling their children, social distancing has become the norm, and how we work and engage with other people has fundamentally changed. It's no surprise that all of these changes have affected the markets and the economy too. So what needs to happen for things to begin to recover? And how long might it take? Hello, and welcome to this market edition of the Merrill Perspectives podcast. I'm Candace Browning, head of B of A Global Research. On this episode, we're going to explore the road to recovery for the rest of this year and into 2021. We'll look at what shape that recovery could take and how people, businesses, and industries are adapting to the strange new normal we find ourselves in. We'll also offer guidance for investors as they continue to navigate the emerging risks and opportunities ahead. Joining me for today's discussion are Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. Hi, Candace. And Jared Woodard, Head of the Research Investment Committee and Director for Global Investment Strategy at B of A Global Research. Hello, Candace. Chris and Jared, let's start with a look at the trillions of dollars of stimulus money that's going to help American families, workers, and businesses get to the other side of this pandemic. It's a massive amount, more than $7 trillion, and still counting. But how is it working, and will we need to see even more government measures down the road? Yes, when you start talking about using the T or trillions, this is serious. And in fact, if you add to this the fiscal spend and some of the balance sheet expansion, it could approach 50% of GDP in the United States. And how's it working? Well, first and foremost, it has reliquified, if you will, the financial markets because of the backstop and the massive amount of stimulus first by the Fed. And then ultimately, as it relates to fiscal spend, from the federal government. Deposits have been put in place directly, direct paychecks to the the actual household, and then ultimately lending programs into the small businesses. So it's early days, but what we're finding is, is this is providing that backstop support to the consumer. And as we all know, the consumer is most important to the U.S. economy. Yeah, I, I would add that you know, it's worth thinking about just how far we've we've come already. In 2020, we endured the fastest start to a bear market in history, but we also witnessed the, the fastest and largest government response in U.S. history in peacetime. In the United States, just the fiscal support alone has made all the difference to households and businesses who otherwise had had no source of revenue, no source of income. But more will be needed. Even after the economy is fully open, we think that debt forbearance, income support, and, and these measures can help a lot. But we will also need to replace things like lost tax revenue for state and local governments so that essential services won't be cut. We've made a lot of progress, but we think there'll be a lot more work to be done. In times like this today, we talk about science, we talk about technology, that gets us back and that gets us through. And we're already starting to see two very important items. The claims numbers, unemployment claims numbers on a weekly basis are slowing down. And taking a look further, the continuing claims numbers are flatlining. All that basically means is, as jobs leave the broader economy, the number of jobs going back already is matching it, which means the economy is getting up off the ground again, 
The other thing that we're all very closely watching is consumer spending, which we all know makes up a very significant part of the U.S. economy. In fact, it's about 70%. So it could take months for the actual physical economy to fully reopen in all 50 states and months before we're all comfortable heading back to the stores and eating out in restaurants. So Chris, I'm, I'm particularly interested in what your perspective is on this and what will it take to restore consumer and business confidence? Yeah, it's important to, to kind of put this in, in stages, the actual first phase of what took the economy down after the pandemic hit was the shutdown. And then from a shutdown, uh, you go into a transitional period where you begin to see some states reopen and then ultimately all 50 states reopen. So you have this wavy move that, that happens over the course of the late spring into the summer in our estimation. And then as that gets through, you start to see more of a robust recovery take hold. Ultimately, temporary workers first get hired back in other aspects of it, like tracers or trackers or sanitizers or temporary workers that reconfigure buildings. All of these things are at the beginning stages of that right now. And once that begins to gather momentum, confidence starts to go up. You spend a little bit more, but the real recovery gathers more momentum in the fourth quarter and heading into what we call the pent-up demand stage, which is 2021. Okay, so those are some of the stages, but in terms of the actual numbers, Jared, what indicators are you watching for that the economy is actually healing and moving forward? Well, I would group all the different indicators that we're watching into three categories. Number one, health. Obviously, we're all monitoring new cases and changes in, in, in the pandemic on a, on a daily basis now across the country and, and the world. In addition to those figures, it's important to, to watch progress on treatments and vaccines and so on. Number two, the macro, the economic data. Chris mentioned you know, initial jobless claims, continuing claims. I think those are going to be incredibly important. In addition to that, every month the Institute of Supply Management publishes their purchasing managers index is probably one of the most important pieces of macroeconomic data every month. And in particular, the, the new orders component of that series. When we see you know a surge in new orders, meaning that more people are, are placing orders for manufactured goods, I think that's going to be an incredibly early and important sign, um, as well as, as housing, because we know that housing and real estate are so important to the U.S. economy. And then finally, number three, markets. If you see continued strength in investment-grade bonds and high-yield corporate bonds, um, indicating that investors are confident that we'll be able to avoid a really you know, catastrophic wave of corporate defaults. I think that's going to be incredibly powerful uh, sign to watch. We hear a lot about the different shapes the recovery could take, from a V to a U to an L, possibly even a W. Chris and Jared, is there a particular letter you're watching for, and why is this so important? Candace, uh, that's a great way to frame this. I think the only letter in the alphabet we haven't heard about is a Q, but nonetheless, we're all talking about shapes. And I think the way to think about it is, is what segment of the economy are we actually talking about? I mean, some segments could be a U for sure. Some could be a V, some could be a W and an L. Um, certainly the travel, leisure and entertainment space could exhibit more of a move down and then a flat line for a while until confidence comes back um, overall. And that's going to depend on science more than anything. If you're thinking about actual manufacturing data or housing data, some of the indicators that Jared talked about, many of them are Vs simply because of mathematics. You've fall that hard, that fast. 
Uh, and ultimately, when you begin to produce things again, those numbers turn around and go the other way pretty quickly. Then ultimately, between now and the end of 2021, which we believe the economy in the U.S. can get back to a similar level it was uh, heading into the virus, that's more of a U overall. But it's, it's hard to describe any one shape, basically. It's more of a wavy recovery in the economy, in our estimation. Can I add one more letter? <laughs> the... Um... <laughs> I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking about the letter uh, J, just because a, a J-shaped recovery would mean that we rebound to a higher level of economic growth than where we began. Uh, the reason I'm thinking about this is a very optimistic scenario, but this pandemic is forcing leaders in government and business to rethink a lot of old assumptions, assumptions about uh, the way we work, about what kind of economy we should have, where our collective uh, priorities should be on things like trade and investment and uh, the allocation of capital. I think with the right mix of productivity boosting you know, policy at the government level and resilience boosting leadership from the private sector, I think economic growth maybe could surprise us, especially in 2021. That doesn't mean we regain all the lost jobs immediately, but I think there is more upside, particularly in the United States and other developed economies than um, people are anticipating right now. Jared, I agree with that. It is a very optimistic scenario, but I think that this disruption is forcing massive amounts of innovation. And I think it could also force real physical investments in capital expenditures that we haven't seen in quite some time in this country, where corporations, as you know, have been more focused on things like share buybacks in order to boost earnings per share. So it is a very optimistic scenario, but it's not out of the realm of possibility as far as I'm concerned. Another powerful trend that I've been seeing is this shift towards localization or deglobalization or the return of domestic production and manufacturing. And it certainly appears that this pandemic is helping to speed up that process. So what could that process say about the path of the recovery, obviously both in the United States, but also in other countries? Well, Candace, our expectation has been that um, this pandemic is accelerating I think the widespread rejection of what was, you know, orthodoxy around free trade and, uh, you know, cap open capital accounts, open, you know, flows of labor and so on around the world. I think that this this shift in thinking is will benefit investments in local relationships, in regional alliances, in resilient supply chains. Uh, and shared values, to be honest. So I think you will see companies start to invest in key ways. Number one, I think, will be healthcare, um, pharmaceuticals, personal protective equipment, medical equipment. If you look at countries that have retained a strong industrial base, they were able to produce this for themselves. So number one, I think, is healthcare, where you'll see more investment locally. Number two has to be industrials, particularly things with a national defense focus. Number three, I think, is going to be technology and telecom. That's partly, you know, U.S.-China story that I think most investors are familiar with. And I think that the pandemic will only accelerate the need to have more security, more focus on cybersecurity, and more domestic investment to, to make those supply chains more resilient. I think Jared really hit on one point that is absolutely fascinating, and it's the acceleration. More investment in manufacturing back home reconfiguration of businesses, changing business models are being accelerated because of the pandemic. We're hitting that second wave of innovation. And that's just not in the healthcare space, that's research and development across all industries. So let's shift gears and turn to the outlook for markets. 
Clearly there's some opportunities, but we also have to be, I think, wary of volatility. So how can investors think about a resurgence of volatility this year and also into 2021? Candice, you've heard me say this in, in, in many podcasts before, and we'll continue to emphasize this. Number one, one of the best ways to protect against volatility in any asset class is diversification. And diversifying within each asset class and across asset classes help protect against spikes in volatility. So number one, diversification. Number two is think about rebalancing more frequently, meaning if you fall below your strategic or tactical weights in equity or in fixed income because of an excessive move in either asset class, consider rebalancing, re-risking upwards in those areas uh, to stay on goal, uh, stay on plan for the long term. Finally, one of the most important items that any investor can, any client can actually continue to do is to continue to work with their advisor. The advisor working with a particular client sets the blueprint, understands the needs, the risks that clients can or cannot take, understands the full financial picture, and having that framework at hand, particularly in times of the highest volatility, both positive and negative, is absolutely important. And we expect that importance to rise in the months and perhaps years ahead. I know both of you have been talking a lot about growth, quality, and yield. In fact, we've been mentioning those attributes and recommending them to clients for years, but they seem to be taking on new importance now. So my question is, where can investors find growth, quality, and yield in today's environment? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, it's in the United States. We've long said that the U.S. is breaking away from the rest of the world in a number of different ways. But if you think about the way the U.S. markets are built, the U.S. markets are built more on growth than anywhere in the world. And in many cases, that it's even the case in the high growth areas of the emerging markets. On the yield side, believe it or not, the U.S. on a developed market basis has more yield than most other markets all around the world, not just in fixed income, but the equity market has almost a three-time or greater yield in it relative to our own fixed income market and substantially larger than that relative to what Europe is offering. And then last but not least, quality. Doesn't necessarily just mean safety or conservative industry groups. What quality means is the quality, in our opinion, of the balance sheet. And that puts it squarely, again, directly in the tech and healthcare segments, which ultimately drive growth and have the greatest free cash flow yield. So it's all converging together, Candace. One of the things I'm most interested in is for people who are retired right now, what should they be looking at in terms of investment opportunities and how should they look at the current volatility that's been happening in the markets? Prior to the pandemic hitting Candace, the world was undergoing a, a major change in yield. And that was an anchor that pulled yield down in the U.S. Those thinking about retirement or those already in retirement had a major plight on their hands, which is how do I replace the income that I had from my job? What we would consider is number one, reassess your plan. And as income drops, as yields drop, um, one of the ways you can take care of that is, is obviously adjust your spending. If you need to pick up extra yield, consider increasing the equity side of your portfolio if you have a long enough term uh, investment horizon, because that's where some of the better yield is relative to searching in the traditional 
areas of yield and do it on a very diversified basis. I think uh, on, a, on a, maybe a little more tactical uh, note that investors who have enjoyed the last you know, 30 plus year bull market and government bonds might look at this as an opportunity to um, perhaps you know, realize some of those unrealized gains. If you have a very long-term government bond portfolio, look at the medium term or, or a little bit shorter so that any increase in inflation or eventual you know, rise in bond yields doesn't become a painful event. Well, Jared and Chris, this has been a really helpful conversation on what we could expect as we gradually move along the road to recovery. Are there any final thoughts as you look to the end of this year and into 2021 that you want to share? I think I'm going to go back to what Jared said on the optimistic tone, Candace. We have some of the greatest minds in the world in healthcare, in science, in technology, all working together globally with massive support working on this pandemic. And with that momentum begets a positive feedback loop, both in the economy and the minds of our citizens. Um, but it also spurs new thinking, new innovation, new ways that ultimately gets us to a better horizon. You know, I think that if we do get a, a J-shaped recovery, it's going to require uh, collectively, it's going to require all of us to do something that might not be our first instinct. In a time of stress and uncertainty, the natural impulse is to be cautious um, and to protect, you know, what's what's close at hand. But if we do see, I think, the, the optimistic scenario come through, it will only happen if we find a way to take a breath, to reach out to other people, for folks who have enjoyed, you know, stable income through this period, to maybe use that flexibility to, to help the people who haven't, and through our policymakers and, and, and elections and so on, to insist that we um, do more to uh, make the recovery faster in the ways that we can to invest and to build. If we do those things, I think we can capitalize on some pretty incredible opportunities. But again, it does require, I think, a conscious decision um, at the outset to do things a little bit differently. Well, on that note, we'll end it. So Chris and Jared, thank you very much for your insights. I know we'll all be watching this situation very closely over the coming weeks and months. And thank you all for listening to this market edition of Merrill Perspectives podcast. My co-hosts have been Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank, and Jared Woodard, Director for Global Investment Strategy at B of A Global Research. I'm Candace Browning, Head of B of A Global Research. To learn more about our latest insights on the markets, please visit ml.com. And you can sign up for Merrill Perspectives wherever you get your podcasts. On our next episode, we'll be taking a longer view into the road ahead two to five years into the future, when much of life as we know it could look dramatically different. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was published on June 4th, 2020. The information contained in this report does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment products. You should carefully consider all relevant factors in making these decisions, and you are encouraged to consult with any of your professional advisors. Bank of America and Merrill do not provide legal or tax advice. 
Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. The views expressed are not necessarily those of Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or any recommendation from any Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith entity to the listener. The information is general in nature and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. The information does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation, and particular needs of any specific person who may receive it. Investors should understand that statements regarding future prospects may not be realized. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Equity securities are subject to stock market fluctuations that occur in response to economic and business developments. Bonds are subject to interest rate, inflation, and credit risks. Asset allocation, diversification, and rebalancing do not ensure a profit or protect against loss in declining markets. Bank of America, Merrill, their affiliates, and advisors do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Clients should consult their legal and or tax advisors before making any financial decisions. B of A Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities Inc., B of A S, and or one or more of its affiliates. B of A S is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation, B of A Corp. The Chief Investment Office, which provides investment strategies, due diligence, portfolio construction guidance, and wealth management solutions for global wealth and investment management, GWIM, clients, is part of the Investment Solutions Group, ISG, of GWIM, a division of B of A Corp. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, also referred to as MLPFNS or Merrill, makes available certain investment products sponsored, managed, distributed, or provided by companies that are also affiliates of B of A Corp. MLPFNS is a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Bank of America Private Bank is a division of Bank of America N.A., member FDIC and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Investment products are not FDIC insured, are not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill nor any of their affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved.